Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. This is Solutions-Focused Dialogue about Race Relations in America. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I am a facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 22 of Race Haven, and today I am joined by my friend and co-host, John Costino. How are you today, John? I'm doing great, my friend, and yourself? I am doing great as well. So this is a special episode of Race Haven. It is a a uh, quick follow-up to a previous episode, and John and I, uh, we wanted to come back on today uh, to discuss further uh, and have a dialogue further about an open letter uh, that was written to Colin Kaepernick uh, that went viral on Facebook in light of his uh, protest of not standing during the national anthem during NFL, an NFL football game. And he's continued that protest, and it's been literally the topic of discussion for a little over a week now. And John and I recorded episode 21, and we talked about this letter, but we didn't really spend the time that we initially uh, intended to spend dissecting the letter and allowing you, our listeners, to hear from us how we both interpreted that letter and what it meant our lived experiences and our perspectives. And the letter um, it went viral on Facebook, and there was a lot of people that supported the letter, uh, a segment of Americans that supported the letter. The letter. However, there's another segment of America, many of whom uh, are in our Race Haven Community Dialogue uh, Facebook group, who absolutely uh, did not like the letter and did not agree with the letter and really, really took a strong uh, disliking to the letter. So, John and I are going to, you know, clear that up and, and not necessarily clear anything up, but more, more or less um, give our listeners, based on the reaction that we've gotten in our community dialogue group, give our listeners um, a better effort in, in breaking down the two perspectives because we think that that will help uh, further our cause of modeling authentic dialogue and helping people to understand uh, how, you know, two different people who are both solutions-oriented can perceive the same event, okay? So, but before we get into that into detail, first I'd like to tell you, our listeners, uh, about how you can become a patron of the show. You see, my goal is to have an entirely user-supported show free of advertisement. So I created a Patreon page. Uh, Patreon is a, a page where our, uh, our listeners can support the show uh, by making contributions to the show for cool perks. You can earn uh, cool perks like a Race Haven T-shirt, by simply supporting the ongoing improvement and quality of the show for as little as $1 a month. So if you like the content that we're providing, if you like uh, this mission that we've set forth, please consider visiting, visiting our Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com and search for Race Haven Podcast, or you can go to racehavenpodcast.com and click on Become a Patron to see all the details. You can also find a link at our Race Haven Podcast Facebook page, uh, simply by clicking on learn more 
when you go to our Facebook page, you click Learn More, and it'll take you, it will take you to our Patreon page as well. So as we do before each show in which we dialogue, I first, I, in addition to talking about our Patreon page and before we get into the dialogue, I also like to take a moment just to share with you some tenets of what authentic dialogue is. You see, I, like many other people, grew up hearing the term dialogue used loosely um, in society, and I didn't know that it was actually a, a structured framework and there were actually rules and tenets to what authentic, true authentic dialogue was. And ever since I've learned it, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that authentic dialogue is a framework that we can use to bring our communities closer, strengthen our relationships, and ultimately bridge the, the, the race-related divide in our country if we all can raise our collective, uh, our collective knowledge and understanding of how to use dialogue in an authentic way. So before we explore our topic for today, I want to tell you why dialogue is greater than debate. You see, because debate, debate is, is what we see. Debate is what we're taught in school. We have debate clubs and, you know, we have debates in class, but we never have dialogues. We, no one's ever taught, or I never learned dialogue when I was going through school. You see, the challenge and the problem with debate is that there can only be one winner, where in dialogue, participants work together towards collective solutions, win-wins. So each week I'm going to share a different example of how dialogue is greater than debate. So this week I want to share with you two different examples that I believe are really applicable to what we're going to discuss today as well as what's really applicable to the dialogues that rage in our Race Haven community dialogue page. So with that being said, the first example um, that I'm going to give you is this. Dialogue assumes that many people – have pieces, to, have pieces of answers, and that cooperation can lead to a greater understanding. In contrast, debate assumes a single right answer that somebody already has. Now, what's really tough about this, especially when it's talking about race relations in America, for those of us, like or I'll speak for myself, as an African-American person who fully understands the history of what it has meant to be an African-American person in America and one who, uh, because just being an African-American doesn't mean that you fully understand that. So I want to make that clear because I believe that's an assumption that we tend to make. Um, but every African-American didn't grow up under the same circumstances and weren't educated the same way and haven't uh, taken the time to self-educate themselves the same way that I personally have. The relationship between, you know, Euro European-Americans and African-Americans throughout the history of our country, we all have some knowledge of it, um, but it takes a certain level of, of deeper understanding to understand the full complexity and a lot of the nuance and also to empathize with um, a lot of the sentiments that those individuals who choose to be activists in today's uh, time, also those individuals, individuals who chose to be activists throughout history, understand things and see and perceive things in a different way. So when you're coming from that, that standpoint of, you know, understanding the problems in a deep way and choosing to act, be an activist, you can tend to take the stance that your, your answers and the way you see things are right, and it's either my way or the highway. And we can develop a sense of it's not even worth listening to anyone that doesn't perceive the problem the same way that I do. But through my studies in, with dialogue, I've come to understand that if you truly want to cause um, 
if you truly want to impact change and you truly want to uh, raise the level of awareness of those who are unaware, it is much more effective to engage in dialogue than to engage in a tug of war where it's either my way or the highway. So we'll get into a little bit more about that later, but I wanted to really highlight that um, and highlight it where it says, dialogue assumes that many people have pieces of answers and that cooperation can lead to a greater understanding. Now, and also I want to make this clear and upfront with, with our listeners in understanding this. I am absolutely speaking in terms of individuals who truly want answers. I understand that there's a segment of Americans um, who are totally invested in the idea of, um, you know, African Americans as being less than. There are individuals who are totally uh, invested in the ideals of racism and white supremacy that still exist in our society, okay? I, I understand that, but I'm not speaking towards those people, okay? I feel like those people are a segment that we're not trying to speak towards. I feel like what we're trying to do with Race Haven is we're trying to speak and bring the individuals in our country who truly want solutions, who truly want to get rid of the race-related tensions. However, there still remains a perception and a communication divide, and what John and I are attempting to do is bridge that divide from those individuals who are still open to and want to understand the problem, and there may just be a lack of understanding, a lack of depth of understanding, a lack of depth of empathy, a lack of depth of knowledge, and those are the people that we're trying to um, attract, and those are the people that we're trying to uh, engage in dialogue so that we can come together towards collective understanding so we can work towards collective solutions. However, if we continue to want to debate with those people and tell those people how they're wrong just because of the way they've been raised to perceive the world, then we're, not, we're going to continue to be at an impasse, and we're trying to bridge that divide. So the second example I want to give that I think is relevant to this dialogue is this. In dialogue, one submits one's best thinking, expecting that other people's reflections will help improve it rather than threaten it. You see, what we're trying to do with race haven is create an environment where everyone who truly wants solutions because they truly want the world to be a better place uh, for their children and their grandchildren, we want them to feel comfortable coming to this race haven environment. We want them to feel comfortable submitting their best thinking and understanding that everyone's best thinking is going to come, it's going to be different, our level of exposure, our level of engagement, et cetera, and our level of uh, again, depth of empathy, depth of understanding, and depth of knowledge. And that only everyone's collective depth and understanding can only be heightened if we're in relationship with one another. However, one of the things that I've been seeing going on within our race and community dialogue is that if individuals come into the group and their depth of understanding is not to the liking of some of our group members, then unfortunately uh, there, there tends to be a bunch of pushback and a need to want to debate and the need to say, why don't you get it, and you don't belong here if you don't get it, and that is definitely not what dialogue is all about. Dialogue says everyone is welcome here who wants solutions, and we're going to meet you where you are, and we're going to all share our experiences and our perspectives with the hope that other people's reflections upon what we share will improve rather than alienate. So in contrast to that, in debate, one submits one's best thinking and defends it to show that it is right. Okay, that is what we see in the news. That is what we see going on in debates all around the world where people are defending their best thinking like it is right 
I'm holding on to this 100% instead of putting it out there and understanding that we all, everyone thinks they're right. That's what I think a lot of people have, have a challenge with, especially when you're looking at something as, as serious as what we're talking about with social justice and literally lives are on the line. Lives are being lost, and we feel a sense of urgency, and we're like, no, we need to fix this, and we need to fix it now because lives are at stake. I get that 100%. However, what I also get is one of the reasons why lives continue to be at risk and continue to um, all the issues that we know exist, especially for those of us who are keenly aware from an activist standpoint, is because a large percentage of the masses because of the indoctrination, because of the way they were raised, because we grew up in a society that was indoctrinated in white supremacy and white normalcy, some of them, just some of our uh, people in our society just don't see the problems that those of us who are act-minded or those of us who work to see, to work really hard to understand and see, some people literally just don't see it. Everyone who doesn't see it is not a racist. Some people just don't see it because of a lack of exposure and a lack of understanding. So, again, this is the complexity. This is the nuance that you get with Race Haven, and I'm taking a little bit of time up front to speak to these things because we are not trying to be like every other platform. We are trying to be different. That is the reason why John and I do this show so that we can say, look, this is my honest understanding and assessment based on my lived experiences. And we can listen to one another and grow from the things that each other has to say and ultimately work towards a shared understanding so that we can ultimately work towards creating solutions to problems and creating new realities that have never been created before. And you cannot do that if everyone just gets stuck and their way is the right way. Let's put, our, put, put all of our efforts and our energy into sharing and reflecting, sharing and reflecting, and then we can work towards creating something new. But in order for that to happen, as a nation, you know, our collective understanding of what dialogue has to change, but from a baby step, what we're trying to do within this community is we're trying to change amongst, amongst us. For all of you listeners who are listening to this show, and for all the individuals who are part of our community dialogue who are listening to the show, what we're hoping to do is model this so that we can learn it and we can master it as a community. Then eventually we can go out and teach it in, in our personal relationships and our communities and our workplaces, and we can impact change. And if we can do a little and it can just grow incrementally, then our change, our, our, our efforts and our change efforts will grow exponentially over time. So I appreciate you listening to me sharing that, that information. I hope it makes sense. And I want to just share with you all before I bring John in the book that I'm reading that informs my practice with dialogue because I want you guys to understand for anyone who may be interested in going deeper into your understanding and knowledge of how dialogue is what I believe is the solution. Uh, the book is called Dialogue and the Art of Thinking Together by William Isaacs. And it says on the cover, a pioneering approach to communicating in business and in life. The book is very enlightening, and it informs everything that you hear me saying here today. So, John, I know I said a lot, but um, do you understand what I'm trying to convey? I do, and if you would allow me, I'd like to take just a few moments because you said a couple of things that 
really were kind of, let's just say, highlighted uh, after our last dialogue. And whether or not the people that were listening and, and participating in this ever hear our conversation right now is irrelevant. I'm going to say this hoping that going forward we don't have the same issues. And what I'm referring to is, you know, we take great effort to be respectful to each other on here, even when we disagree on the issues. And I found it, you know, almost hilarious that some of the listeners actually had the audacity to say, I pander to you and I kiss your butt because they're, they're just not able to comprehend two people discussing something with different perspectives, but doing it in a way that's respectful. Did you notice that in the, uh, in the comments? I was like, I can't believe that I'm, I'm going to be accused of kissing your butt simply because I'm not attacking you and attacking your position and, and trying to win the argument. And again, you, you said it very eloquently. It's the difference between dialogue and debate. And that's why I wanted to highlight this because when you hear Scott and I talk, we're talking from our own perspective and from our hearts, but we're not trying to convince each other. We're not trying to change each other's position or opinions. We're simply sharing where we're coming from because Scott's coming here as I'm coming here saying, I don't have the answer myself. I can't get the answer myself. And maybe together collectively we can accidentally stumble over the answer. Or maybe we can say something that a listener will kind of contribute and help us. But I just found it ironic that if I don't agree with somebody, they're very quick to say, Costino doesn't get it. What are, you, what, what are your qualifications for being here? You're a white businessman. And then when I'm respectful to you, I'm pandering to you. So I just I want to highlight that that's the whole purpose of what we're doing here, speaking freely, honestly, and sincere, sincerely, very transparently, but with respect to each other. And if people could get used to that, maybe we can start to move that needle. And, uh, and you know what, Scott? We only have to move it 1% every degree. We don't have to move a mountain, but if we can move it 1% every degree, one degree every day, we can get a little bit closer each day to what we're looking for. Absolutely, and we understand. Uh, we, we love and respect everyone that is a listener. Uh, we appreciate your time, your energy, your effort. We know, <clears throat> we know that this is a very emotional thing. We understand that you have family members, you have friends, you have loved ones who you feel like, uh, their lives could be on the line based on these issues that we're dealing with in our country. And we understand the urgency in the sense of we got to get to the solutions and we have to get to it now. So there's a level of understanding and a level of empathy for that. And even what John said, you know, John, I feel like some people are just, they're just not used to hearing people engage in dialogue the way we do. And they're, they're right. expecting us to try to beat each other up. They're expecting us to try to talk over one another and try to win to make whoever's listening whether it be someone, um, you know, who may be more, share more of your upbringing and your ideals, uh, they may want to see you win and crush me, and then vice versa, people who may share my upbringing and my perspective and my ideals may see me want to win and crush you, but that's not what we're trying to do. So I hope that no, you guys biggest, will continue biggest, to take this journey with us. Oh, go yeah, ahead, and the biggest fear that I have, and the reason I bring this up, the only fear that I have is I've seen too many times in the comments from people that, yeah, what, what's John's angle? He says all this stuff publicly into your face, but you know what? I've known too many people like that, and you know what? Behind closed doors, they're dropping the N-word, and it, just, it, it offends me. I'm okay with it because I took this role on, but it offends me that people just can't 
after week after week doing this, can appreciate that it's not like I come on here for an hour and a half, two hours uh, to say nice things, and then, you know, I go sit with all my white buddies and we're racist. It's like it's ridiculous, but that's how indoctrinated some of the members of the community are, that they can't appreciate or, or even believe that it's possible that you and I could come from these different perspectives, yet be authentic, that when we hang up, and we, we talk plenty off the air, and again, it's not always that we're in agreement, but we're still always respectful, and it's not like this is some kind of a show we're putting on. It's ridiculous, but that's the reality, and that's why I bring it up, because I don't want future listeners to even go down that road. It's like, look, judge us, but be authentic the way we are. Yeah, and you, and you know what, John, you know, I mentioned I talk about negative feedback loops and I talk about systemic issues, and what we're talking about is just another one of those things. Uh, we've been, you know, we've been corrupted as a people, you know, based on the, um, the, the faulty systems designs that we live within and that we live up under and that our country was built on. And unfortunately, you know, what we're speaking to is one of those negative feedback loops, um, you know, just akin to some of the other things that we talk about, not on the same level of severity, but it's still, you know, it, it's one of the one of the results, one of the outputs of the, all the negative system uh, inputs and system designs that exist within our society, and that's actually what we speak, what we're speaking against, and what we're trying to, um, you know, remedy and do our part to remedy. So I think just by us being here, continuing to do what we do, hopefully a, a lot of our listeners will appreciate and stick with us and continue to grow and learn as we continue to grow and learn. So I just want you listeners to know that, again, we appreciate you and we hope you stick around and you understand. The longer we stay, you know, the more genuine uh, you'll, you'll really get it. You know, what they don't know, John, they don't know that we've, you know, we've broke bread together on many occasions. They don't know that we've been on, been on vacation together, that we spent time feet in the sand together. They don't, a lot, I know that I literally don't know those things because they haven't heard us say those things. This is the first time I'm saying this. So, you know, I've gotten inbox messages from, of our, some, from some of our listeners saying to me, Scott, why are you wasting your time with that guy, John? And it just boggles my mind, but I just understand that, unfortunately, again, it's just the way they've been indoctrinated. The way I've been indoctrinated, I am not pointing the finger. I have to work on myself to think the way I think and to be as accepting as I am and not be as jaded uh, as I was. And John has said on many occasions that he's had to work on himself to not be that way as well. So, again, Absolutely. I want you guys to know that, again, John and I, we've broken bread. We sat down. We've had dinner with our families together. We've had our feet in the sand together. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of experiences outside of even long before, years before we ever even started yeah, this process together. We did now, the things yeah. I just mentioned. Yes. So, so with that being said, uh, we're, what we're going to do today during this show is, again, we're going to get into uh, the actual letter that sparked uh, a lot of the, the heated uh, the debating. Unfortunately, it kind of went into debating. Um, and just perspectives. You know, I respect everyone's perspective uh, through the podcast, but I want to – I'm sorry, through the Facebook group, and, you know, but I want everyone to make good on what I said the initial show would be, and that was the way I promoted it on Facebook was that it was going to be us talking about this letter, okay, because John sent me a letter um, to, an open letter to Colin Kaepernick in my inbox, and I read it on the last show, but we didn't spend enough time dissecting it and why John said he supported it. So before uh, I allow John to comment to that, I want to share just a couple of the Facebook reactions so you guys can understand uh, what was happening. So um, after I posted this letter and I said, John supports this letter, I don't. Our next show 
we'll discuss why. So immediately after that, the comments came rolling in after people read that letter, and a lot of them were very heated. And here's just a sampling of what we got. The first one was this. I read things like, like this letter, and I hear other white people who claim to support anti-racism say they're in agreement, and it starts feeling like it's a lost cause. The next comment. Worst letter ever. John Costino, I must admit, if you support this letter, I honestly feel all the work at Race Haven is lost and all for naught. One that I'm going to read. The co-founder of this group supports this letter. What is this group about? There are so many fallacies here that require too much effort to point out. To what end? If the co-founder of a group supposedly dedicated to real dialogue based on a real premise thinks this has credibility at all, I'm done. We are all worth more than that. So those are just three of the comments I wanted to read just so our listeners who may not be a part of the group can understand, you know, some of the sentiments. So before I get into it, John, uh, you and I had a conversation yesterday where you said that, uh, you know, you kind of spoke to what you were thinking when you sent me the link and you said, uh, I support this letter. So before we get into kind of breaking down the letter, can you just share with our listeners um, what was in your mind and your thought process when you sent the letter to me and you wrote, I support this? Absolutely. And I think it speaks to the comments that we made before that we live in a, in a society that's all about sound bites and headlines. And when I sent that to you, it was after uh, seeing Colin Kaepernick's, you know, the, the, it was obviously all over, his interview, his words, and obviously the, uh, the decision to sit out the national anthem. Now, when I heard he did that, I have the mixed emotion, number one, I get why he's doing it, but number two, I live in the world. I live in the cause, reaction, all that good stuff. And all I thought was, oh, my God, you just set us back, again, hundreds of miles that we've been working towards. Because without one ounce of doubt in my mind, I knew that nobody was going to listen to his message. His message was going to get lost, just as I referenced in the past, the Black Lives Matter message got lost and then everybody would go down the other rabbit hole and because of the way Colin Kaepernick chose to deliver it I knew it was going to have blowback and so in my mind literally all I wanted to say to you and I should have had a conversation versus the uh, the text in the inbox was here we go and it wasn't so much that I support what was in the letter I support what's going on with the reaction to the letter, meaning you can't get mad at all the people who now exercise their freedom of speech to say you are dot, 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 because of the way he delivered it. And I know uh, some people took offense to my conversation in the last podcast when I said he was not qualified, he was not prepared to make that statement. It's not that I think he's, you know, stupid or, or unintelligent, but when it comes to that, when it comes to making a public statement about something that volatile, you got to be prepared. And I'm no different. I absolutely have to be careful and think through things I do and things I say, not because of my intentions. My intentions can be as pure as possible, but perception is reality in our world. And it's how the audience perceives what I say or what I do. And we live that from the soundbite. Um, as far as the headline that you posted, and then from some of the dialogue that we had. 
So my whole point to, to lay a foundation here is not so much that I agree with what the author said, but I agree that, you know what, bad move, Colin, because all you've done is you've opened the door, and I'll leave it this and kick it back to you. You've opened the door for just boatloads and boatloads of criticism that now have removed everybody from your original focus. You had a great message, a message that needs to be out, but it got buried because of the way you chose to deliver it and the lack of preparation and, and really thinking it through. And I'll leave it at that because I've got plenty of ideas on how he could have done it and had a much better result. But because, again, we live in a soundbite society, he made his statement, and then the avalanche of, of criticism followed. I appreciate you sharing that, John. And before I say what I'm going to say, I want to remind everyone about dialogue. Because in dialogue, one submits one's best thinking, expecting that others, other people's reflection will help improve it rather than threaten it. So you see, based on what you just said, John, I already know that a lot of people uh, who are activist-minded hear you say that it didn't, you know, basically what he said, um, it caused a certain reaction and it didn't land. But on the flip side, the way you spoke to it, John, see, John's speaking to it from his perspective, his reality, and the people that he grew up around and probably their sensibilities and the things that resonate with him in terms of sensibility. But that does not mean that John is not solutions-oriented in the sense that he's not speaking towards solutions the way that you, a listener, or even Scott, may speak towards solutions. Because Scott says, you know, as we talked about in the last show, I didn't have a problem with uh, what Colin Kaepernick did. And what Colin Kaepernick did from people who think like me, it actually energizes us. So this is the, this is the divide. This is the gap, right? Because if, for a lot of the people I engage with in the African-American, I'll speak to the friends I spoke to. We love seeing someone take a stand that rattles the masses because for people like us who are activists, we feel like, you know, the masses don't see the problem. So we have to do things to kind of shake things up. And whenever, in order, in order to get them to look a little bit closer, a little bit deeper, because obviously because of, um, you know, majority population privilege as well as what's called white privilege and all these, excuse me, all these various social phenomena that put European Americans in a position where they're not going to be able to intuitively understand or see some of the, um, the racial issues in America. So with understanding that there's a clear divide and a clear gap, perception gap, I understand that what John says, knowing the foundation of what he says, that he wants solutions. He wants people to be happy. He wants people to understand Collins quite without being offended. And what I'm hearing John say is that he wishes Colin Kaepernick would speak to the issues and try to get things done and move our country forward, but not do so in a way that causes such upheaval and such venom. Why should I have a problem with that? You see, in dialogue, the first thing I want to do is I want to understand, John. I want to make sure I understand. And John, what I just said, is that true in terms of what you're trying to uh, state, that Absolutely. you want solutions, you just feel like it could be done in a way that doesn't um, ruffle as many feathers and get people to go toward a negative disposition versus a collective positive together disposition. Is that what you're saying? A absolutely correct. That was my only blowback on it was 
it didn't it well say when I say it didn't land, I want to be more clear. I completely understand it. There's a large segment of the, the listeners that are gonna say it was perfect. He brought it to the he brought it to light. Like you said, he, he shook things up. But I look at it like this. Landing a message with your own audience doesn't move the needle. It's when you can land a message with an opposing audience to have them go, wow, never thought about it that way. That's when you can affect change. I mean, I've been a mediator for the last 15 years of my career. And mediation is similar to dialogue, but it's just trying to bring two very opposing sides together. And I'll throw one little piece out there because Colin Kaepernick was very clear in his message. He was speaking for the people who didn't have a voice. You heard that clearly, didn't you? Yes. I heard it clearly. But I also knew that as soon as it came out, the masses weren't. And it was exactly why that letter was written and why African-American people wrote letters. It wasn't just a white-black issue. There were a lot of people that were offended because he took two issues and instead of putting them to bed, left them open. And one was the fact that he is an extremely wealthy, successful, privileged individual in our country that when you start talking about uh, oppression and, and, and that there's no privilege, the, the lesser, smaller-minded people, both, both European-American, African-American, Asian-American, anybody who's struggling financially is going to instantly hear that. It's a knee-jerk reaction. You go, how dare you talk about being you know, deprived or not having – it's because their brain instantly goes to, I would trade places with you in a second. That's where their brain goes. So now his message right. is lost because they're, de- they're defending, dude, I'm broke. I'm busting my tail, and you get freaking $19 million to throw a football. Like, it, it's not wrong for them to have that knee-jerk reaction because their brain didn't pick up what he was trying to deliver. So that's what I mean when I say don't, don't leave a door open. Like, if he had started off by saying, let me first of all say I'm, I'm so grateful for the life I've had. And see, when we take this letter apart, here's my point. If he had said very humbly – and with, with sincere gratitude, all the things that that journalist ripped him for, they're off the table now. If I stand there and say, I want to first of all thank, you know, everybody, my, my, my family, for, and, and just piece by piece talked about how grateful he was for the life he's had, and then made his statement, but you know what, there's an awful lot of people that don't have, and now all of a sudden you can't attack him. You can't attack him because he's taken every one of those little bombs and diffused them. And now you can't use him against him. And now he doesn't look like a spoiled brat. He looks like a very humble, very grateful man who now has this altruistic desire to help those who don't have a voice. And that's all I was trying to say was, you know, take two or three minutes and, and lay a foundation. And you know what? You don't do that by being a young athlete. You do that by, as I said on a previous call, reaching out to someone like yourself, Scott. Again, I'm not kissing your ass. I'm saying you are very skilled. You have put the time and effort in. I would have rather, if I was friends with Colin Kaepernick, I have to do, call Scott Speed, talk with him. Either let him prepare you or have him standing there with you because you deliver a message now that does not have the capacity. It's impossible for people to attack that when you lay it out there as a foundation and now you have a platform and everybody's listening, both the African-American community that you already landed the plane with and now the European-American, the Asian-American, all the other people who may be financially challenged, 
that now can't attack you for being spoiled and ungrateful. Does that make any sense? It makes all the sense in the world, John. I hear everything that you're saying loud and clear. I, 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 what I hear you saying is that, you know, basically, again, you're, you're, you're saying that he needs to, and maybe he's not capable, but that's what we're doing on this show. Maybe he didn't have the time or he doesn't, you know, in that position he wasn't able to. But what John is saying, if we want to move the needle, then we have to go through the pains of speaking to the complexity and the nuance. And that's one of the things we try to do on this show. That's the reason why Race Haven exists is because we tend to speak in these generalizations and it continues to uh, exasperate and widen the perception and communication gap. And what John is saying, if he would have gone through the pains of either writing out a written statement where he clearly left no room for misinterpretation and then went to the problem, then we wouldn't have had the firestorm. John, I hear you loud and clear, and I feel like that's what I hope our listeners do as well because I feel like that's what dialogue is because initially I was the same way when I, heard, when I read this letter and I heard John say I support it. You know, I was like, man, John, you support this letter? And, you know, we're about to get into the letter in more detail now, but, but, but hearing you just say that, John, because I've given you um, the space in our conversation because I, I appreciate dialogue to allow you to further explain yourself, that's what doesn't happen, and everyone jumps to these knee-jerk reactions. And granted, John and I left ourselves open, if we're being honest. We left ourselves open for that based on how, we, how I wrote the show and how John presented the letter to me. And he acknowledged that. John acknowledged to me that he shouldn't have said, I support it, because that left room for interpretation, right? Would you say that's true, John? Uh, absolutely. That I left room really for a lot of different interpretations. Could have elaborated. And what John said to me later was, it wasn't that he necessarily supports the letter and line by line and everything that it says. He supports some parts of it, and he understands and empathizes with the letter is more or less what he was saying. And he also said he wanted to send it to me because he felt like this letter was proof that Colin Kaepernick's Dance didn't hit home the way that John would have hoped it to hit home. Not necessarily that he supports every line by line or whatever. It's more or less like, look, this isn't this isn't providing solutions. This is causing a greater divide. Okay. So now what we're going to do is, um, and, and let me say this. And then the way I presented it on Facebook, just for everyone who's listening as a member of the group, the way I presented it on Facebook, I presented it very, you know, generalized. John supports this letter. I don't. So that left room for a lot of interpretation. So everything that everyone wrote is valid based on the way you perceive what we wrote. But now we get a chance to do what most people don't get a chance to do, and that's to go deeper so that hopefully we all can learn from us breaking it down and peeling back some of the layers of complexity. So we're going to do that now uh, for the remainder of the show. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read Colin Kaepernick's statement that he made after the game when he first sat down. Colin Kaepernick said, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. So that was Colin Kaepernick's statement. So, John, we have 50 minutes, so we have to do this very efficiently, where I'm going to read um, three, let's see, three, four different segments of the speech, and then we and you can reference back to Colin's uh, statements as you're breaking down the segments of the, of the I'm sorry of the open letter, and then I'm sure. going to come back and I'm going to give my assessment of those four different um, segments of the letter. So the first segment that I'm going to read is this: Dear Colin Kaepernick, you talk about oppression in America, but you are privileged. 
you were lucky enough to be adopted as a baby and pulled out of your broken home by parents who might not share your ethnic background but did everything they could to make you successful. And because of your hard work and dedication, you are living a life that millions only dream of. Good for you. If we are measuring privilege by your income, however, with a $22 million net worth, you are more fortunate than the majority of people, not just in America, but in the world. So that's the first segment, John. You kind of spoke to this already, but go ahead and, and share how that hit, you know, and when you first read it, how that hit, you know, how that landed with you. In, in Absolutely. And what Colin said. Certainly, and, and I'll be brief because, again, I've already mentioned this, but just to reiterate for the listeners, again, when I speak, I'm not speaking as John Costino. I'm speaking to a community of folks out there or for a community of folks out there that I already know how they respond because I've been dealing with this stuff in my career for three decades. And, and what I hear from Colin Kaepernick and what I hear in that letter is don't stand there and talk about, you know, being oppressed and, and not having opportunity because I'm broke. I've been busting my tail for whether it's 20, 30, 40 years, whoever the listener is, whoever the reader is, and, you know, I can't pay my bills, and I can't this and I can't that, and you play football and you're a millionaire, so sit down and shut up. That's how it's perceived. That's why the backlash was so bad, and that's why for me I was like, my God, this is going to do exactly, like I said, what Black Lives Matter did. It's going to take a very important message, and it's going to pollute it to the point where no one's hearing the message anymore. So I'll kick it back over to you. But that's how letter reads, like just sit down and shut up because you don't understand what being broke is. You're not an authority on it. And they were missing what his message was, was there's too many uh, people of color that are oppressed, and I'm speaking for them. So back to you. Okay. So when I, when I hear that stanza, you know, you, you talk about oppression in America, but you are privileged. You were lucky enough to be adopted as a baby and pulled out of your broken home by parents, et cetera, et cetera. All those different things, I immediately think to myself, when I think about what Colin Kaepernick said, as I'm reading that, I'm like, what is this author talking about? Because when Colin Kaepernick says, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag that oppresses black people and people of color, he's not talking about himself. And he also said that this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. And I'm able to read between the lines because of my perceptions and my background and my work as an African, and I intuitively get it, um, which I'm sorry, I can't say that. I'm an African-American who grew up in a predominantly poor and working-class African-American environment and, you know, interacted with people and friends and families and those type of environments that saw oppression firsthand. So it's like there's so much nuance that goes into our understanding of things, and we, a lot of times we assume that other people will understand it, and I've learned not to assume that anymore. And I realize, again, that's why you always hear me talk about a perception gap and a, per- a perception and communication gap. So with that being said, I instantly, when I first read that first st- segment, I said, oh, there's a perception gap rearing his head. There's a communication gap rearing his head. The person who wrote this letter and the thousands upon thousands, probably some millions of Americans who agree with this letter, they hear one thing where Colin Kaepernick is saying an entirely different thing. So, you know, when this guy is talking about Colin Kaepernick's millions in net worth, in my mind, I'm like, they missed it. It totally went over their head. They missed it. He's not talking about him. He's not talking about Oprah and Jordan and Barack like a lot of uh, European Americans 
that I've heard or read say things like that when people speak up, they can't, they can't understand why successful or wealthy or well-to-do African-Americans would complain about anything. The way that the majority of Americans view success, they view it as money, and they view it as individualistic, whereas Colin Kaepernick and a lot of African-Americans, not all, but a lot, we view it collectively. It doesn't matter how much success that we have for a lot of us, if a lot of uh, African-Americans are still being oppressed and are still being uh, stigmatized and being systematically, um, you know, targeted by law enforcement and getting stuck in that generational poverty, and we understand the history of how all that unfolded, like all that informs our understanding of the word for a country that oppresses black, and black people and people of color. And, but the flip side, I understand this author didn't see it that way, okay? So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, for some of our listeners, I hope that that makes sense for some listeners who may not uh, understand that that's what Colin Kaepernick meant. I just want to say I empathize with your perspective, and for an, Af- an African-American like me who thinks like me, but immediately that Colin Kaepernick was not speaking for himself. He was speaking to those who continue to be systematically oppressed. So going to the next stanza. As an NFL well, can player, we, can we, have the can we pause there for just one second? Can we pause there for one second? Oh, sure, sure. The, the reason I say that is this is the problem. It was already lost. Like right from there, right from that initial reading, you get that the message was never coming back. Like it wasn't like they were going to bring this full circle. <clears throat> and that's the problem. Right. Freedom of speech is a bitch. Freedom of speech is wonderful. Yeah. You can exercise it. But if you don't pay attention, like it's a gun. It's a gun. If you're not aiming it properly, you could, you could take out some innocent people. And that's the problem. This letter was as much of a mistake in my mind, if not more, than Colin making his unprepared statement. Because both of them created what we're dealing with right now, which is a convoluted mess that has now affected tens of millions of people, and we're not talking about the issue that was the core of the initial thing. So I'm going to shut up and kick it back to you, but that's what I mean by freedom of speech. Yeah, you, you have the right to use it, but use it respectfully and responsibly. And, and I'm talking is, about like the said, just in that, just in, that, just in that first stanza and just from Colin Kaepernick's statement, his first sentence, it, again, it just highlights how we just don't communicate well as a country, as people. Like, we really don't know each other. And if we don't, take the, if we don't go through the pain of getting to know one another, then we're going to continue to have these negative feedback loops that present, that, that present this issue when someone can say something and someone can interpret it entirely the wrong way. But here's what we're doing, John, and, again, I hope our listeners get this because people say I've, I've gotten inbox messages and I've talked to people that just don't get it. And they, a lot of people don't understand why I would want to talk about systemic racism and, you know, race-related issues with someone like yourself who isn't what they would call qualified because you don't understand it enough. And what I'm trying to get them to understand is those are exactly the people that we need to be talking to because we need to, we need to um, you know, increase our numbers. We need to increase our numbers in the effort to eliminating systemic racism and race-related issues in America. And there's people out there, just, just, just because of communication gap, that truly want solutions, if we could all communicate and get to know each other better, we could form enough of a coalition that we could literally, you know, have enough people in mass to stand against those people who truly want to stay separate and who want exactly. overt racism and white supremacy and all those ills. 
So this is just, a, like everything, so much is just a, a result of poor communication. And we know why. Historically, we know why. But we're doing the work. We're doing the work of trying to eliminate those things, and dialogue is the framework. So going forward, as an NFL player, you have the opportunity to turn on a mic and influence millions of people for good. But after the preseason game on Friday night, you used your platform to promote an anti-American theme as a player of one of the most American sports of all time. Then you decide to throw gasoline on the fire by implying that cops get away with murder and that they're getting paid doing it. I don't know about everyone else, but I would love to see you trade in your jersey and pigskin for a gun and a badge. I'd love to see you go patrol the inner city in Baltimore or Chicago at night and then tell me cops are a part of the problem. I'd love to see you jump in front of an incoming bullet to save a life because it's a part of your job. Another suggestion? Go knock on the doors of the widows who lost their husbands in the police assassinations in Dallas and Baton Rouge. Tell them cops get away with murder. So, John, your interpretation of that segment. Absolutely. Now, this is part of the, um, again, the, the challenge. Had he specifically referenced Tamir Rice in that issue, no one on the planet, no one on the planet would have the legitimate right to disagree. But because of the blanket generalized statement, it's offensive to me, it's offensive to many, because he generalized and in his we'll just say lack of preparation, insinuated cops. Cops is plural. Cops can be taken many ways. I have friends who are police. I had considered going into law enforcement. I didn't, but my point in saying that is if you're not going to be specific, don't say it. Because now, forgetting all about the affluence and the money and the privilege, now you've offended every cop that puts the badge on and is not a racist, prejudiced, power-hungry piece of garbage. Do they exist? Sure. Is there plenty of examples? Sure. But is it all of them? No. So that statement just alienates everybody and, again, gives people an opportunity, a legitimate opportunity to attack Colin Kaepernick's message, which at its core, I agree with the Tamir Rice issue, and I'm using that one. There's probably dozens that could be referenced right now, and I know many of the listeners are saying, see, John doesn't know. He's only using one. It doesn't matter. One is all that it takes to prove that police brutality, police corruption, all that exists, and it needs to be completely eradicated. But the way to do that is not to make a generalized statement about cops because now you give anyone that wants to, including this, the journalist, the ability to say, really? Really? And then all of a sudden reference cops being shot in Dallas, murdered, and so forth and so on. So I'll kick it back over to you. But, again, that is, again, a statement that I can't disagree with at its core because Colin left the door wide open and made a generalized statement that's offensive to anybody who has family or friends that are in law enforcement or worse, that have had somebody shot in the line of duty. Okay. So when I read this statement, uh, this, this segment of this letter, you know, a, a couple of things jump out to me. One is, um, you know, when, when, the, when the writer says that, you know, you use your platform, platform to promote an anti-American theme for, for one of the most American sports of all time, I hear a lot of pride in that statement. You know, I hear that American, that genuine American pride. 
And someone wrote to me as a comment on, on our um, show, the last show, that the show could have been called Pride and Scars or Pride versus Scars. And, again, the communication and perception gap. A lot of the things that the majority American population, which are European Americans who make up well over 60, close to 70% of the population is still European American, okay, close to 70%. That's an overwhelming majority compared to 12% that are African Americans. So those, those, those dynamics, you know, play a large role in a lot of what we're dealing with, just those population dynamics. The large majority of, of Americans have grown up to be indoctrinated with all of this American pride and all this, how we're the, the most richest and strongest and powerful co- country in the world and the history of all this amazing stuff. And if you didn't have to be in a position of understanding the oppressive side of the minorities that, that were impacted on that literally, you know, were the victims of America rising to the, you know, its status, and you're only – you know, um, you only just saw the rewards. You got a chance to reap the rewards and bask in the pride and the glow of what it was to be American. So I understand um, that that's what's on these, that glow is what's on these statements. But when I see it, that glow also frustrates me because it frustrates me again that a segment of Americans don't get it. A large segment of Americans just don't get that our country and our history is more complex than that. So for him to say he promoted an anti-American theme, it's like, no, he promoted an anti-American theme to what you believe America is. But a large segment of Americans, then, they live in their privilege, so they only see America through their eyes. And the perfect example of that, of what I'm saying, is this article was written um, in a, a, a news journal, online journal called the Independent Journal Review. And I, I looked up the independent, about the Independent Journal Review, and here's what they say they're about, okay? It says, we're a social-first, mobile-first news company serving millions of Americans each day with informative content. We're dedicated to reporting political and cultural news in an objective, fair, and entertaining way to a large and engaged, independent-minded audience, okay? So this is what this journal um, you know, this is their mission. This is who they are. This is what they're trying to do. So I read, um, you know, so they, they say that they're doing those things, but then I went to their team. Team was filled with literally it's a page full of probably about 50 staff journalists, and they are all European-American men and women. So how can you possibly put forth news and reporting that is cultural and objective and fair, but it's coming from one perspective. You see, a lot of European Americans, and even some that aren't, they don't understand that America, because they're living in it, they don't understand that the social cultural norms in America America are European-based. And a lot of them don't step outside of that to say, hold on, there's other viewpoints and perspectives outside of just what the European-American viewpoint and perspective is. And this whole journal is set up based on that, saying that they're speaking to the world, and I'm sorry, they're speaking for our country and providing independent mind, for an independent-minded audience, but you don't have any diversity or culturally, cultural diversity within your, your uh, ranks. So I share that to say that this whole letter that was written in this particular journal is speaking from that perspective. So that's one problem. And then, the, and then the letter goes on to say, 
Then you decide to throw gasoline by implying that cops get away with murder and that, and that they're getting paid to do it. And in my mind, instantly, I'm like, well, yeah, there's plenty of cases. Tamir Rice being one of them. And like John said, we can name dozens. And I, even I only know a handful, but I have friends who know like literally a dozen of the names. Like if Montoya was on here, he could name ten more names where someone literally African-American was murdered or also we'll say killed because they were never convicted of murder, but they were killed at the hands of a police officer for something that was very, you know, procedurally sketchy. And a lot of, um, you know, it was just sketchy all the way around where that person, that person did not have to lose their lives. And then on the flip side, a lot of African-Americans are sharing videos every day on social media of a European-American person shooting at police officers, running from police officers, crashing their cars into police officers, but yet the officers don't use the same type of force with apprehending that person. And these videos are starting to float around on social media, and African-American people and their non-African-American allies are saying, see, European-American cops are showing every single day that they can figure out how to apprehend potential suspects or suspects without murdering them. So why are they murdering so many, disproportionately murdering so many African-Americans? That's the rub. And we know when we read the lines of what Colin Kaepernick is saying, we intuitively, we think of those things. Okay? So that's what I'm reading too. Now, let me keep going. When, when he talks about, um, you know, patrolling Baltimore and Chicago and all those things, again, I'm thinking to myself, <clears throat> This author is not making, he's not acknowledging the, the lives lost. This author is not acknowledging the police brutality that has been documented to be taking place in this country. This author is jumping into a very defensive stance, defending, making a generalized defense of police officers and making a generalized kind of statement like they are against reproach. Like how dare you question policing in this country? That's how I'm reading it. And I'm which is just by as that wrong. because, yeah. which exactly, it is just as wrong. It is, it is just as much of a generalization as what you perceive Colin Kaepernick to be making. And, 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 and then when he says, go knock on the doors of the widows who lost their husbands and the police assassinations, it's like, man, that's adding fuel to the fire. Now you're using that, those, those particular instances which rarely happen. Like someone posted in, in the group that, like, the chances of a police officer getting shot in the line of duty, the percentages of that happening are like the same percentage of a farmer in Ohio getting ran over by their tractor or something. It's like 0.00001%. Like, it's just not even in comparison to the lives that police officers take, um, no matter the ethnicity, but especially as African-Americans and minorities comparing to cops who lose their lives. So this author is showing no empathy on that end, and then they, this author is throwing fuel in the fire to the sensibilities of the, the, the segment of Americans that he's speaking to to say, yeah, cops are, being, cops are out here being murdered, and you got the nerve to be speaking up for those people that are being killed by police officers. So here we are, we have a tit for tat. Okay, so I have a – so, but I'm just sharing. I think I've done – I think I've said enough in terms of how I interpret it um, without going into, you know, even I, I kind of spoke to some of the tit for tat because I can't help it now because I'm so aware of the difference between debate and dialogue. But I think, John, do you think that I've explained pretty much the sentiment that myself and people who think like me, uh, how we took this particular segment? Absolutely. And that's the crime of it is I understood it. I know what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying. That's what pissed me off was because Kaepernick left it open 
and now it gets convoluted. So, yes, 100% in agreement with what you're okay. saying. Okay, so let's go to the next segment. With your comments after Friday night's game, you've proven one thing. You're more interested in being a victim than offering any solutions to the challenges we face in America. If you, if you just would have left it at, I chose not to stand for personal reasons, we wouldn't even be talking about it right now. People will respectfully disagree with your decision but recognize your right to have it. We still recognize your right. But the fact that you decided to insult the country that has given you everything and then took a shot at law enforcement while, that, while exercising that right, and by saying what you said, you left an impression on your fans, most importantly, your young fans. You gave them a reason to take their blessing in America for granted. You gave them a reason to buy into the false narrative that they have less of a chance to make a difference in the world because of their skin color. So, John, your, your thoughts on that, John, on that segment? Well, I will actually reference something that we discussed many, many months ago when we were talking about President Obama and, you know, what did that do for America, specifically young African Americans, uh, when he became president. And, I'll, I'll, again, not defending the message, but I'm explaining that message and how it lands, again, on the neutral, unaware, you know, European-American masses. It's hard for people to separate the two. Um, when, when President Obama was elected president, you and I discussed it. It, it actually raised, it blew the, the glass ceiling off. It raised the level of what could be achieved. And so for, for Callan Kaepernick to, in my estimation, just him personally, to be able to say, I have been benefiting from the American dream, from the adoption to being, you know, raised in a healthy environment, but more importantly to being blessed in the, in the one-tenth of one percent to go be a paid professional athlete, he has that opportunity to talk, to speak to that, not to say none of the other stuff matters, but to say, look, it is possible, and, and again, do I have the solutions? Hell no, I don't have them. But to at least offer that there are solutions and we need to work towards them is, is a way to deliver a message that, again, eliminates the attack, eliminates the ability from everybody that right now is ripping Colin apart to at least offer something in those lines. I don't have the answer. I'm, I'm saying I'm not uh, able to deliver an answer on that, but I'm saying to, to tie it together and at least offer something and say, look, we can be better. I mean, even say, look, we can be better than this. As as cops, we can be better than this. As citizens, both European American and African American, we can be better than this. Let's find a way. That would have been fine. And I think that's why the author uh, basically said, if you had just said, I'm standing for personal or I'm sitting for personal reasons, the backlash would have been far less and at least that would have given him the chance to prepare something more uh, effective as a message. That's how I read that, because for me, again, I'm just disappointed that he didn't think it all the way through. Um, I'm, I'm excited that he had the stones to stand up and do it, because that's huge. That's career suicide, and we're witnessing it now. But the bottom line is I applaud him for having the courage to do it, for the willingness to do it, for the awareness to do it. Just wish that he wasn't a 28-, 29-year-old kid that didn't think it all the way through, that he instead had reached out to somebody, say, help me put this in perspective the right way 
so it lands the plane versus blows the plane up. And I'm talking about to the white community, not to the African-American community that, land, that, that they get it. But, again, it's landing a plane with your own audience doesn't do anything. Landing the plane with the other audience is where you want to get, and that's what he didn't do. Okay, and just to, again, just for uh, some, some, some nuance, when John says the white audience, obviously we all know that there's a segment of European-Americans who fully empathize and are aware and get and support Colin Kaepernick. John's speaking to the, what we call the neutral masses, the masses of European-Americans, the large percentage of European-Americans or the segment of European-Americans who are not overt racist, like they're not white supremacists. They don't claim, they don't claim white supremacy overtly, okay? And if you've read anything I've written and you understand, I personally believe that all Americans have been indoctrinated with uh, white supremacy and white normalcy. I believe we all have levels. We're all on the spectrum of the white supremacy and white normalcy scale because we grew up in America, which was built on the concept of white supremacy and white normalcy. However, some of us through intuitively, just because of our upbringing, we fall somewhere on that scale. And then others, others of us, I'm sorry, we fall somewhere on the scale of rejecting those norms. And some of us just through the hard work, especially for European Americans who may have grown up not seeing and being exposed to the policies of white normalcy and white supremacy and white privilege, they've had to work really hard to understand those things and, and raise their level of, level of empathy towards them, and a lot of European Americans have. But that's not who John's speaking to when he says, you know, the, the segment of white Americans. So, again, that's what we try to do in this show, just add a little uh, complexity and not just speak in generalizations. So with that being said, um, John, do you mind me? Is, is that a fair assessment, John, when I say that? Absolutely. 100% on point. Okay. Okay. So with that being said, you know, I just want to say that, um, you know, when I, when I read this, these lines, <clears throat> okay, you know, man, it, th these lines probably made me the most irritated, okay, um, because when he says that you're more interested in being a victim than offering a solution, the whole victim thing instantly irritates me because I hear that so much from a segment of, of European Americans that African Americans only want to play the victim. And I've even heard that from a segment of African Americans as well. It's a smaller segment, but there are those, I do have those African American people that, are, that I deal with or I've spoken to that share some of those same sentiments where they're like, you know, African Americans are only just playing a victim whenever African Americans speak out against the social and societal ills in our country, they throw the victimhood thing out there. And, and I've read someone say, you guys only want to, you, you just want to stay in a, a perpetual state of victim, you know, victim status. And so I reject that on every level. Um, so that line bothered me um, because, again, he obviously wasn't trying to play a victim. And, again, for, the, for this, the author to take it that way, uh, again, I just, you know, it was a miscommunication, a gap, uh, or whatever it is. Uh, if you just, and then when he said, if you would have just left it out, I chose not to stand for personal reasons, again, you know, it's like, guess what? That's not the point. If he would have said I chose, to stand for, uh, chose not to stand for personal reasons, it wouldn't have been a protest. It wouldn't have gotten the attention of the masses. It would, we wouldn't be talking about it, and so many Americans wouldn't be talking about it right now. So, like, it's, it's, again, it's like, man, you just don't get it. You obviously just don't get it, okay? And so it's like, what do you mean I chose not to stand for personal reasons? No, I chose not to stand because black and brown people, as Colin said, black and brown people are oppressed in America. That's the point. He wants to get that message out, okay? 
So as I read it, that's what that's how I'm interpreting it. Interpreting it, okay. And then he said, the fact that you decided to insult the country that has given you everything and then took a shot at law enforcement. Again, and this sentiment that if you're quote unquote successful in the eyes of the masses, the country has given you everything. Well, again, person is not acknowledging the fact that a lot of even successful African American people will get pulled over and mistreated by law enforcement just because they're driving in a neighborhood that a law enforcement agent may be, you know, suspicious of them driving in or driving a nice car and they'll ask them a question like, how did you get that, where did you get that car? Or is, I'm sorry, not that question. They'll say, is this your car? I was just speaking to a gentleman yesterday who's an executive at Wells Fargo who drives an S500 Mercedes drop top, and he got pulled over at the exit of his house in a very affluent part of Atlanta, and a police officer had the nerve to ask him, is this your car? Does that happen to, for our listeners, you know, does that happen to European-Americans who are, this gentleman was in his 50s, who he wears, he wears you know, dresses professionally. Would, would you get asked that question? See, this is a lot of instances, the answer, I'm assuming the answer is no. And this is the things that, you know, Colin Kaepernick is speaking to. So for this person to say that this country has given you everything, what this person doesn't realize is that this country has not given us our full humanity. A lot of us, a lot of African Americans feel like no matter how much money we make, this country has not given us our full humanity. This country and this world has not given us our full humanity to treat us as equal. That's the problem. That's the part of the things that we're standing up, sitting down, marching, protesting, and whatever for. And there's a segment of Americans that refuse to acknowledge that, and they only look at it as playing a victim when we speak to it. And that is extremely bothersome that they don't have that level of empathy. The other thing that I'm saying when I, that I'm thinking when I'm reading this, it says, and by saying what you said, you left an impression on your fans, most importantly the young fans, that they, you gave them a reason to take their blessings in America for granted. You gave them a reason to buy into the false narrative that they have less of a chance of making a difference because of their skin color. Again, I, it bothers me that a segment of Americans will not engage in the dialogue like we're engaging in, John, to listen to what I'm saying and other people like me are saying when we're telling you that is crap, okay? The reason why we, we are speaking out and the reason why we are protesting is because when you say the blessings that we, the blessings that we are granted in America, I'm like, what blessings? The blessings that get us disproportionately put in jail? The blessings that, have cre- the blessings that created the war on drugs that have decimated African-American uh, inner cities for the last 30 years? I'm going to read a statement here from a book, from the, the, a summary of the book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle, Michelle Alexander. During the past three decades, the U.S. prison population has exploded from 300,000 to more than 2 million, with the majority of the increase due to drug convictions, nonviolent drug convictions. This has led to the U.S. having the world's highest incarceration rate. The U.S. incarceration rate is eight times that of Germany, a comparatively developed large democracy. Uh, Alexander claims that the U.S. is unparalleled in the world in focusing enforcement of federal drug laws on racial and ethnic minorities. Now, here's the thing. While studies show that quantitatively Americans of different races consume illegal drugs at similar rates, in some states, black men have been sent to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times those white men. When you start now, I'm ending the quote now. 
when you start to look at the statistics of the African-American people that are in jail for the same offenses that European-Americans commit, it is disgusting and it is criminal. So when this author talks about blessings, this author clearly doesn't know these, state, these facts or doesn't want to know. I don't know his intent. But I'm coming from this point of I, I truly believe that is from a place of not knowing, okay? And I know a lot of our listeners and some of the people I talk to and engage with, they believe that some people write this stuff because they don't care to know and they want to keep people in the dark. But the fact of the matter is there's people like John, who I know doesn't want to be in the dark, who I know is what I would call neutral, who is not racist, who just doesn't know that these things have been happening. You know how I know? Because I didn't know. I didn't know about these things. I knew intuitively something wasn't right in our communities. I know intuitively too many people are going to jail for too long of sentences for things that when I went to school in a predominantly European-American college, I saw those kids doing just as many drugs and selling just as many drugs, and I didn't see police officers stopping and frisking. I didn't see police officers raiding the parties, and I saw them doing lots of cocaine, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew where I grew up and where I went to school when African-Americans are doing cocaine or selling drugs, they were occupied by police. So I saw those differences, but I couldn't put my fingers on it, and I didn't understand the depths of the differences, and I didn't understand the impact. And I didn't realize that if you remove that many men from a community over the course of three decades, that it's going to leave ruin in those communities. But now that I'm reading a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, I'm connecting the dots, and it makes all the sense in the world. And it infuriates me. It infuriates me that, that poor people of African-American descent have been targeted in this country, literally from the inception of this country for different ways. And in the last 30 years, it's been, on the, it's been through the war on drugs. It's, it's disgusting when you look it up. Look it up for our listeners. The war on drugs, look up uh, Michelle Alexander and read Jim Crow or read the summary of it and just open your mind, watch her lectures, etc. okay? So for me, when I hear the author write those things, I'm just like, man, you just don't get it and you're lost. So, again, that's the disconnect. That's the divide. So we have 15 minutes, John. I'm going to go to the last stanza and we can close it out. It's 2016, and you're acting like Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream speech still isn't a reality. Yet, your, un- your undeniable evidence that it is. Your success story is the American dream. Proud of it. Yeah, you have the right to sit out the national anthem, but if you consider all the things that led you to where you are today, when it's time for the anthem, you should be standing there in silence with deep appreciation for the beautiful and fulfilling life America has given you. The end. John, your thoughts on that last segment? Honestly, we, you we, you read yeah, well, we, I've already basically expounded on it enough times. For okay. me, I 100% acknowledge the letter was off base from his initial message. But again, speaking to the masses, the letter, again, answers what people want to hear. Dude, be grateful. And uh, I'll, I'll throw this out there. Maybe this can be part of either our solution segment or, uh, or another part. But, you know, one of the things that's come to my attention through our dialogues and our offline conversations is people on this planet, African-American, European-American, whatever, wealthy, poor, we all think we're playing checkers, but we're playing chess. And here's the problem. Each piece on the chessboard has different uh, abilities, different skills. And the problem is none of us really understood we were playing chess. We all thought we were playing checkers. I never sat back and thought I was better than anyone else. 
And that's why for me, when I first started doing these, these shows with you and the dialogues, remember how offensive I used to take the term white privilege? Yes. It, it, to me, it was like, that was like a racial slur to me. And then that sounds silly and African Americans like, dude, shut up. But, but it was to me because of the way I've lived my life, because of the, the, the choices that I've made. And because of, I mean, again, you know me, I've spent probably the last three decades with 50% of my time in the African-American community, which people wouldn't believe, but you know my career, you know where I've been, what I've done. So I've yes. been involved in it. It's not like I have read about the African-American community. I mean, we've joked about stuff that I've, you know, that I've done because of my career. And so for me, I don't think of myself as being better than anyone else or white privilege. So I've always thought about it as a checker game. We're playing checkers. You and me, and we're gonna we're gonna work hard and try to outplay each other. But in reality, it's been a chessboard. But this is the rub, and this is how I'll take it back over to you. If you and I don't realize we're playing chess, and we don't realize it's a chessboard, you can't get mad at me, and I can't get mad at you for not knowing it was chess all along. And I don't control the board or the game. You don't control the board or the game. Someone else a long time ago created the game, created the rules, and set it in motion. And we're playing it out. We have been playing it out, as you said, for, for generations and decades through the systemic racism, through the, uh, again, I won't use the term white supremacy because to me that instantly goes to KKK and lynchings and stuff. But I get what you mean when you say it. But, yeah, we're, we're all along some spectrum on this board. And the biggest thing for me is we all have to acknowledge you didn't cause it. I didn't cause it. And together we have to, to work to find a solution. And that's where the rub is. When, when Colin Kaepernick makes unprepared statements that offer the ability for people to react the way they did. And then this journalist reacts the way he's supposed to because he's not aware enough. He's, his brain's not there. He then, so now all of a sudden we have, a, a, again, a racial divide in our country that is not white-black. It's just based on, you know, perceptions and, and the way people feel Colin might have been ungrateful or uh, and in the African-American community that this uh, journalist is just unsent he's, he's insensitive to stuff. And you know what? They're both right because the perception is the reality, and that's where we have to be way more conscious. So I use that as my, my response to your message because I've already said I don't really condone the message of the letter, but I can't argue with the journalist writing it based on what Colin did and how he left it open. You know what, John, I'm going to piggyback on that. Instead of me, <clears throat> I think I've hit enough points uh, about how I feel about these various stanzas where people will know how I feel about this one. The last thing I'll just say is it bothers me that a segment of Americans co-op Dr. Martin Luther King's message and use it for their <clears throat> um, for their uh, their way of um, you know justifying their lack of empathy. That's the way I'll put it, and I'll leave it at that. But it's done far too much, and it needs to stop. But that isn't a part of the solution because a part of the solution, again, is what we're doing is dialogue, John. Because what I realize, and when I talk to a lot of African Americans who think like me in terms of our understanding of the issues, a lot of them don't think like me in terms of my understanding of what the solution is. And I know that you feel the same way, and you just hinted at it, and I want to speak to it for our solution segment. We're going to jump into the solution segment right now. So for the solution segment, <clears throat> I think that the solution is what we just did. Because like what John just said, 
we are all literally playing out a game that was set in motion years ago, years ago, okay? We all, the, the sides were picked for us years ago. Someone says, Scott, as an African-American, you were on this side, and John, as a European-American, you were on this side. That was decided intentionally in the 1700s. It was decided intentionally, okay? And there's so much history on it, and if you go through Racehaven, um, racehavenpodcast.com you'll, and look at some of my blog posts, you'll start to see links and things that go to the history of how all this was set up, okay? Racehaven podcast.com or racehavenblog.com it'll take you to the same place and you can you can start there and what I want to say is because I understand fully that we were literally before we were born these sides were chosen what I understand is that we have to transcend that we can't keep fighting from my side versus the other side all we're doing is perpetuating what was put in motion centuries ago we're perpetuating it. It's living on. It, it, it's, it's living on. And like John said, because of how I understand systems and because I understand the historical context, what I realize is that the person who wrote this letter is right. As hard as it is for me to say that, the person who wrote this letter is right. You know why? Because he wrote it for his side. It's right for the people who've been indoctrinated to believe the things that he wrote. That's their truth. That is their truth. So therefore, it's right. And for anyone who wants solutions, the first step is acknowledging and accepting that the way John perceived this letter is right. You can't attack him for it. You cannot attack him for it. You can't even attack the author. Because the author hasn't opted in to Now from a traditional sense Yes you can attack the author Because that's how we play things out But if you want to step into the world of dialogue And the world of solutions And the world of being empathetic to the fact that that person Has been indoctrinated to believe that Then what you should be trying to do Is bring that person into If, if you understand and believe in what we're pitching here With dialogue being a solution You would want to go approach someone Who believes in this letter who understand who, who identifies with this letter and identifies with what this author is saying. And you would want to engage them in dialogue and, and let them see that you're listening to them and you're trying to empathize and hear everything they're saying from their perspective. Then you would ask them to do the same for you. And you would share what the letter meant to you the way I just shared what the letter meant to me. And then hopefully that person will do in, will meet you in kind and say, oh, now I get it. I see what you're saying as well. And then both of you can take both of your quote-unquote sides and your collective understanding of what ultimately it is that you want. What's the underlying assumption? What's the underlying fear? And ultimately, what's the underlying goal? What do we want to accomplish? And now you can work together to creating that. Because that that, that ultimate solution, is something that has never existed in our society. And one of the key tenets of dialogue is taking two opposing sides and working towards the middle by listening and empathizing with each other and then ultimately going off to create something that has never been created before. And John and I cannot create that something that's never been created before by ourselves. But hopefully, God willing, 
this message, this message is hitting home with a segment of our listeners. And hopefully it will start to spread. And ultimately we can create a, a community of people who learn the skills of dialogue. We actually start talking to people who don't think like us, and we dialogue with them instead of talking only to the people who think like us, the echo chamber of people who think like us, preaching to the crowd of people who think like us, that's not going to cause solutions. So when John says, Scott, his message didn't hit home because it didn't hit home with the right people, I get what he's trying to say. I get that. Because John's saying the message needs to hit home with the masses of the people who don't get it. Okay? Because his message resonating with people who already get it doesn't move the needle. It doesn't move the needle. So that's why we have to dialogue together. So I hope that makes sense. That's my message for solutions. Again, the solution is dialogue. The solution is us learning authentic dialogue. If you Google it, you'll get the, the, there's all the rules and everything. You can get the book. It's out there. Teach it in your communities. Teach it to your children. Teach it in your schools. Teach it in your churches. Teach it in your political affiliation groups. Teach dialogue and talking to people who don't think like you. John, we have four minutes. Do you have anything you would like to add? solutions? You know, I will simply say this. You hit it right on the head. We have to come together. We have to be willing. You know, it, for me, it breaks my heart that, you know, so many people are attached to their own perspective. I used to be that way. I mean, I get it. It's never a criticism or a judgment. It's the hardest thing in the world to do to let go of your own beliefs, especially when you really, really believe. And uh, I, I guess my, my offer is just to say, look, I'm, I'm living proof that it works. Because when we started this, Scott, I didn't have this awareness. In fact, you remember, I, I, I wasn't obnoxious because I wasn't coming on to be an ass, but I did have my own perspective. And through the dialogues, and I want to thank Montoya Smith because, you know, he was a part of some of our early calls, and it allowed me to not just hear what you said or what he said, but to understand the why behind it. So I guess the biggest thing I want to say as far as a solution is, you know, if, if you don't want a solution, stay the way you are. Battlegrounds are being, you know, <laughs> laid in every city across this country. But if you don't want to end up in a freaking civil war, which is what my fear is ultimately, then we have to say, you know what, what we've been doing isn't working. And what I know isn't going to get us there. So like you said, I have to make the decision to want to understand you and to learn from you and to find a middle ground. That's got to be the choice for all of us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's our time for today. I mean, I I hope that this uh, call resonates the way that it feels like uh, it should um, because it was a great show um, in terms of us being able to talk this through. And please send us your feedback. Uh, it really helps. Uh, you know, I want to close out with sharing some feedback that I received, um, you know, from a listener that I think is really applicable to everything that we just shared. So I received this feedback from a Facebook inbox uh, from a woman by the name of Winnie Hayes, and she said I could use her name. And I'm going to share this on all of our pages as well. She said, hi, Scott. I just finished listening to podcast number 21. I also listened to number 20. I just wanted you to know that John is right. You are making a difference, and you are opening the eyes and the hearts of people who want, with emphasis, want to get it. Between you and John really makes me say, oh, now I see. 
I just wanted you to know that you and John are a great team and your work is greatly appreciated. That's what we're going after. We're going after the, oh, now I see. That's what we're working towards, getting more of those. So, again, that's our time today. A special thank you to my co-host and friend, John Costino. You can find him at johncostino at yahoo.com. You also can find him on Facebook at John Costino with the C-O-S-T-I-N-O. And be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven Podcast on the iPhone Podcast and Stitcher Radio app. We want to hear from you. You can email us your perspectives at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. And please visit our Race Haven Podcast Facebook page or racehavenpodcast.com and leave comments and questions about today's show. You can also join our online community by joining the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group. If today's episode resonated with you, please share it far and wide. A Race Haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, and assumptions frustrations and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America together. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven radio show and podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.